You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. A quick note that this episode was put together completely virtually, with each of us working from our own homes, with makeshift studios being cobbled together in our bathrooms and our closets. On behalf of the entire Metamorphosis team, I hope you are staying healthy, happy, and safe in this difficult time, and we want to extend our sincerest thanks to the healthcare workers and other essential staff that are working tirelessly to combat this pandemic. Now let's get to the episode. We hope you enjoy. Hello everyone, welcome to Metamorphosis. My name is Aiden. And my name is Igor. We are currently in the heart of the pandemic, recording this podcast remotely, and so given the circumstances, we are straying away from the usual vein of Metamorphosis and talking with local COVID expert, Dr. Stephen Taylor, author of The Psychology of Pandemics. Hello, Dr. Taylor. Thank you for joining us. Thanks very much. So can you maybe start off by telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, I'm a professor in clinical psychologist in the Department of Psychiatry at UBC. I've been on faculty since 1991, and um, my area of clinical and research um, specialty is anxiety disorders broadly, that is uh, panic disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, but also more recently um, um, health anxiety and including um, the psychology of pandemics. In your view, is the COVID pandemic unfolding similarly to other pandemics, or is it different? Uh, yes and no. What is very similar is what we saw early on was the rise of anticipatory anxiety um, in communities before the actual occurrence of, of the pandemic. So in places like Vancouver, people were very anxious even before there were any cases of COVID-19. Um, and we also saw what we've seen in previous pandemics, um, the rise of xenophobia and racism. As, as anxious people became very frightened of foreigners, um, panic buying, people rushing to stores to stock up, which we've seen in previous pandemics, um, sporadic cases of bad behaviour, that is uh, looting or robberies, which again we've seen in previous pandemics, but also the rise of altruism, which was a feature of previous pandemics. We've also seen, just like other pandemics, um, the rise of rumours and conspiracy theories and quack cures and people trying to make a buck by um, price gouging or trying to sell masks at exorbitant prices. Um, So we have seen a lot that we've seen in previous pandemics. What we haven't seen yet is discrimination or ostracism of healthcare workers. In fact, we've seen the very opposite, which is great. In previous outbreaks, we've seen people becoming avoidant of healthcare workers. Now, I have heard some anecdotal reports of that happening, uh, this time around, but it hasn't been widespread to my knowledge. Um, what I'm wondering we'll see is uh, what we've seen in previous pandemics is non-adherence to vaccines. And that was a big problem with the 2009 H1N1 influenza vaccine. And from our data, uh, almost 20% of people this time around say they're not going to get vaccinated against COVID-19, which is a concern. But we'll see whether that unfolds. Now, what is very different this time around, this is the very first pandemic in the era of social media. And that's been a two-edged sword. On the one hand, social media has made it easier for people to come together socially while physically um, distancing themselves. So uh, so in previous outbreaks, for example, loneliness and isolation was quite a problem among uh, senior people. And of course, some of them killed themselves. 
Uh, this time around, we're able to reach out to seniors um, electronically. Um, so that's a good part of social media. The downside is it's, uh, it's sped things up. It's made it easier for fake news um, or conspiracy theories to spread rapidly throughout the globe. Um, and, and it's also uh, made it easier for um, panic buying to spread as people are able to observe people in other countries acting panicky and scared and panic buying, which has fueled panic buying in, in uh, other places. So you mentioned some people have the anxiety response. Why is there that different response to the pandemic? That is, why do some people treat it like the end of the world and some people refuse to acknowledge its severity? Uh, it depends in part on people's psychological makeup and predisposing factors. Um, some people have what's called an unrealistic optimism bias. They see themselves as being relatively impervious to infection or impervious to bad things. And so those people, for the longest time now, have been downplaying the significance of COVID-19. And we're also finding that in our research that these are the people who disregard social distancing. And they're also the people who say they're not gonna bother to get vaccinated. Um, but on the other hand, we've got other people, another group of people who are highly, highly anxious. And they're, from our research, we found that they're people with predisposing either psychological problems, that is pre-existing mental disorders, or traits that predispose them to become highly anxious around COVID-19. They might be people who are very, score very highly on the personality trait of intolerance of uncertainty. So those people who aren't able to tolerate uncertainty and COVID-19 indeed comes with a, a whole host of uncertainties, they're the people who become very, very anxious. And also people with pre-existing health anxiety and obsessive compulsive tendencies, they're also the people who are becoming quite anxious during this pandemic. In your blog, you talk about the anxiety around the word pandemic itself and the consequences of using it too early. Do you think in retrospect that the pandemic was called too late? Uh, I think it was. Cause the, the WHO lost a grip on that. Names and words mean a lot. What you call a pandemic uh, is extremely important. If we called it Wuhan bat flu, for example, it would have um, incited racism or it would have amplified racism and it would have uh, amplified the needless culling of animals. And that's happened during previous outbreaks. So the WHO were great in, in calling this COVID-19. You want a name that suggests something serious but not a name that's going to incite racism or, or other adverse effects. Now, as to whether you call, when you call something a pandemic, I think the WHO waited a bit long. They were concerned about needlessly frightening people, but by the time they called it a pandemic, many countries throughout the world were already saying, hey, look, this is a pandemic. And so that's a concern because it undermines the WHO's credibility. And credibility in healthcare authorities is, is vital because it's important for people following the advice of healthcare authorities. So to sum up, I think they called it a little bit too late. Yeah, and, and like you said, having faith in healthcare workers is super important for people actually following um, the advice that's given. In one of your studies, actually, you talked about a poll given by the Angus Reid Institute that looked at um, how many people were confident in the healthcare system. And the response was that only about 33% of uh, respondents were confident that the healthcare system, healthcare system in their community um, was prepared to deal with uh, new cases of coronavirus. To me, this seems like a really high percentage of the population who don't have faith that the healthcare system is prepared to deal with uh, a new pandemic. Why do you think that might be? Well, it's for various reasons. One important thing to realize is pandemics are dynamic unfolding events. 
So the Angus Reid poll, that poll was conducted very early on in the pandemic where there was hardly any um, cases of COVID-19 in Canada. And so what we've found is that um, more people have faith in the healthcare system now that they're actually seeing governments or, or healthcare workers or health authorities coming forward and doing things to contain the spread of infection and to care for the sick. And we're seeing that the, the, um, the people who don't have faith in health care authorities has dropped from about 30-something percent down to about 20, which is good. Um, but we're still seeing 20% of people are still very afraid and don't trust health care authorities. That can be for a variety of reasons. Again, people who are very worried and very anxious might actually worry that, um, that there they won't be someone there to look after them if they were to become sick. And again, it's those people who have a high degree of intolerance of uncertainty or who worry a lot about their health. And one of the things that you also mentioned earlier was how one of the differences with this virus is that people are um, looking at healthcare workers in a different way. So um, actually sort of being, they're being exalted almost in the media. Um, Why do you think that this sudden change sort of happened? What do you think is the reason why people are are looking at healthcare workers differently with this virus versus uh, previous viruses? I think that's one of the lessons learned from previous pandemics. The WHO have a program that calls Healthcare Workers as Heroes, and that was an informational program to to give people the idea that our healthcare workers are vital for um, battling COVID-19. And of course, as part of that, there's been grassroots movements about people coming out throughout the world at at 7pm cheering healthcare workers. So that's made it a lot easier to be a healthcare worker, but nonetheless, there are anecdotal reports of people being wary around healthcare workers, particularly people who are very frightened of getting infected because they come across a healthcare worker and they might wonder themselves, is that person infected or not? With social media and marketing, I want to talk a little bit about the word infodemic that you've mentioned before. Um, so this sort of idea that there's a lot of information circling around and it's hard to know what's true and what's false. Is this sort of a unique challenge with this pandemic or have we seen this before? We've seen it before, but it's worse this time around. Um, even during the bubonic plague, there was fake news getting around that uh, back then that Jewish people were spreading infection. Uh, during the Spanish flu, uh, or what's now called the 1918 H1N1 pandemic, uh, there were rumours in North America and England that it was the Germans who were spreading the um, the uh, infection, and that was because that pandemic arose in the context of World War One. Um, yeah, so there's there's always been that misinformation. Even during SARS, there was a uh, fake news getting around that Hong Kong would be locked down, which caused widespread um, distress and panic. What we're seeing this time around is even worse because we're all interconnected digitally, and so fake news or rumours can rapidly spread. And we've seen some of that already. So there have been fake news about, say, Toronto being locked down and people getting that message, getting very alarmed and thinking they're helping their loved ones by forwarding the message to other people, which just fuels this fake news or aids its dispersion. One of the, I guess, fake news pieces that we have seen is some of the pictures of, you know, empty store shelves and making it seem like there's this apocalypse happening How do you think this has influenced maybe the panic buying that we've seen? Um, And then what do you think is the motivation for people to spread these images that could cause panic buying? Well, that's two separate really important questions. Um, 
in the case of panic buyers, and surveys bear this out, their behaviour is not driven so much by a disruption in the supply chain, so they're not so much worried that, oh no, um, there won't be enough toilet paper or bread or, or meat or so forth. They're worried about the behaviour of other people. So they're looking around seeing, seeing other people madly buying up things and thinking, well, I, I better do it too or I'll miss out. So there's that fear of missing out that, that's happening there. And it's, it's these images that have, have, um, have uh, fueled this. And some of those images are fake. Now, who spreads those images? Well, it's actually this int- it's interesting. There's been some work on internet trolls. And these are kind of like the, um, the classic Joker villain um, from the, the, the Batman movies. Uh, not the most recent Joker, the Joaquin Phoenix one, which is a completely <laughs> different Joker altogether. That's a seriously psychologically disturbed um, person. I'm talking about the psychopathic Jokers. These are agents of chaos. They enjoy getting a rise out of people. They get a kick out of um, making people look stupid. They get a kick out of generating fear and mayhem. And if you assess them, they score high on psychopathic traits. They lack empathy, they're Machiavellian, they enjoy manipulating people, um, they have no uh, remorse, they're callous for what they do, and, but they genuinely enjoy creating this mischief. So it's, it's those sorts of trolls. And I think they're also the sorts of people who are going out videotaping themselves licking produce in, the, in grocery stores or things like that, or deliberately coughing all over people. They get a kick out of it in a perverse way. Well, in the realm of social media, what do you think that uh, the responsibility is of some of these social media sites to control these trolls, um, contain them, prevent them from spreading information? It's interesting, um, a few weeks ago, and things moved so rapidly during COVID-19, a few weeks ago seems like an age ago, um, the Director General of the WHO uh, announced that they were battling two things, COVID-19 and internet trolls. I think it gets down to the, the old phrase, do not feed the trolls. Uh, they get a kick out of attention, and if you ignore them, if you um, deliberately do not forward the uh, videos, the provocative videos that they're circulating, um, they're going to have to find something else to do, and they won't get the kick that they're looking for. I think that's one way of doing it. Another way has to do with responsible journalism. And I think the journalism this time around in COVID-19 has been pretty good. It has been, by and large, fairly responsible in that they are not giving a lot of attention to conspiracy theory or theorists or to this uh, internet trollery. And that's another way of managing it. And, of course, a a further way of managing it is just recognising it for what it is. uh, you know, again, these are agents of chaos who get a kick out of, 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 of doing this, and if you ignore them, then they'll go away. Well, speaking of sort of the, the responsibility of, of social media and other companies, we've also seen a surge of these sort of quack cures, I guess, uh, companies marketing their products like they're some sort of cure to the virus. And uh, a line I really like that you used was uh, Cheetos in the time of coronavirus um, from your blog. What do you think is sort of? How do you think the the markets are, are responsible for um, in terms of marketing their products uh, in a way that's like these quack cures? Um, it varies on a continuum, and um, what we're seeing today is what we saw in 1918. Back in 1918, there were advertisements for soap, um, and the advertisement said, "You know, you need to wash your hands because the influenza is getting around," and they were using that to their own advantage to sell soap. 
And we're seeing this the same uh, time around now. There was a Times Square ad by Coca-Cola um, telling people to um, uh, practice social distancing. So they were trying to tie their product to um, social distancing to make their product look good. And so companies are always doing, trying to do this, to try and make a buck. Uh, then the question comes, well, when do you cross the line and, and, and become inappropriate? And that's something of a judgment call. Um, again, during the Spanish flu, there were people being a lot more provocative and, and being unscrupulous and exploitative. There was one ad, for example, a, a Toronto bicycle company, and the ad ran, well, get out of the, the stuffy, contaminated trams and go ride one of our clean, healthy bicycles instead. <laughs> <laughs> so th there was that. But I think what, we, what is more disturbing is the unscrupulous people who buy up large quantities of hand sanitizer or toilet paper and so forth, or masks, and try and price gouge and sell it at inflated prices. And I'm really glad to see that Amazon is, is clamping down on those sorts of people. Do you think this kind of response, the panic buying, is an inherent response to crisis, or is it more due to external factors? It's, it's a bit of both. What happened during when panic buying was at its highest, and we're still seeing sporadic outbursts of, of panic buying, but at, at its highest during COVID-19, the public were being told that, okay, something new and scary is coming along and special, uh, but you don't need to wear a mask, and you know, notice how that's changed over time, but back then we're told, don't wear a mask, save them for the healthcare workers, all you need to do is wash your hands, and that was at that point. This was before social distancing was implemented. So the public are being told, oh, something big and scary is coming along. There's no vaccine for it. All I'm being told to do is wash my hands. And when people are threatened or people are faced with a threat that threatens themselves or their family members and loved ones, they want to do something. They want to get a sense of control. Even if that's an illusory sense of control, they feel better doing something. And so going out, stocking up, panic buying gave some people that, that sense of agency, the sense that they were getting a control over this event. So I think we've reached that time of the podcast to ask the question that's been on everybody's mind. Why specifically toilet paper? Well, it's not specifically toilet paper. There have been people uh, in various places stockpiling meat. They're, they're, the, they're the big, um, they're people with the big freezers. Um, uh, I have heard reports of people uh, south of the border stockpiling guns and ammo. Uh, but toilet paper became an icon for panic buying. And that's partly because... Um, in principle, almost anything can be a subject of panic buying. If people feel a sense of urgency uh, and, a, and a threat of scarcity, they will run out and buy whatever seems to be scarce if there's a sense of urgency. And it just so happened that some of the images that went viral were of people fighting in the aisles over toilet paper, people with shopping carts stacked with toilet paper. Those images were able to go viral because they sparked a sense of moral outrage. And that's what goes viral, things that spark moral outrage or uh, evoke strong emotions. For toilet paper, it was pretty obvious what those packets were. It would be a bit harder for those things to go viral if people were, were fighting over bland-looking boxes that might have contained hand sanitizer. Toilet paper, big packets, readily identifiable. There's a sense of the absurd to it. But there's also a sense of threat, too, because um, most people believe that they need toilet paper, although in some cultures um, that's not necessarily the case. 
A friend of mine told me, well, that toilet paper thing is just a hang-up of Western cultures. You want to get over it. But there's also something interesting about it too. Toilet paper is closely linked to disgust. And if you get people who are frightened of getting infected, their sensitivity to disgust is heightened. In other words, fear of infection <coughs> excuse me, and disgust are two very tightly linked concepts. And so with people who are frightened of infection, very frightened, and want to keep themselves safe and don't know what to do, then it's logical that they would go to something that's an, a, a tool for escaping or alleviating disgust, hence toilet paper. So in a sense, toilet paper became a conditioned safety signal, or if you like, a symbol or a good luck charm for people to, to feel safe. And I've even noticed people going in and buying it when they don't need to, simply because it makes them feel safe. Um, and of course, you ask these people why they're panic buying and they come out and they say, oh, I don't know, everyone else is doing it. But toilet paper itself, I think, was because it's linked to disgust and disgust is tightly tied to fear of infection. Are there any other of these safety symbols that you predict could become a commodity as the pandemic goes on? Well, we've already seen hand sanitizer disappearing. Uh, that didn't get all the attention of toilet paper because it wasn't so ridiculous. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But it, that went very quickly. Sand, 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 hand sanitizer were, disappeared yeah, very quickly. Yeah. yeah. Ditto for masks early on. The N95s just disappeared. Um, toilet paper became absurd, uh, and that went viral because of that, and that got noticed. Uh, I've heard rumours about, um, for women, hair dye uh, flying off the shelves too because people can't get their hair cut these days. Um, and the, uh, the whole idea of panic buying of masks has become uh, less of a problem now because people are being encouraged to make their own. What could happen is when a vaccine becomes available, people could be um, uh, tri uh, trying to hoard stocks of vaccines. There have been riots and outbreaks over vaccines in the past. And in past outbreaks, there have been uh, rushes on on pharmaceuticals and over-the-counter preparations. That could happen this time around, um, but it hasn't so far. Vaccines are something that are obviously going to be very important for this pandemic going forward. But something you talk about is how in the past, even when these vaccines become available, many people elect not to get vaccinated. Do you think this might be different for COVID-19, given the stringent social measures that have occurred so far? Um, yes and no. In the past, uh, vaccination non-adherence, or, or what the WHO euphemistically called vaccination hesitancy, was a big problem. It was really bad for um, the 2009 H1N1 pandemic. Uh, roughly 50% of people in the studies said they didn't intend to get vaccinated. Now, that wasn't as, as lethal as COVID-19, so you might think, well, on the one hand, maybe more people will get vaccinated. But on the other hand, COVID-19 is a lot more unknown. And so back then for the influenza pandemics, the public had a lot of experience with influenza vaccines. And the H1N1 pandemic, the vaccine for that was in the minds of many people, just another vaccine. This time around, we've got a, a coronavirus vaccine and there wasn't a coronavirus vaccine for SARS or MERS. So this is a very different vaccine. And if you look at the reasons for why people choose not to get vaccinated, for some of them, it's um, that uncertainty. And ironically, it's that, that um, the people who are very frightened of getting infected are often the people who won't get vaccinated. 
Uh, it's interesting because a vaccine, I guess, is phylogenetically um, recent and it involves injecting a pathogen into one's body. And so the people who are very anxious don't do it. Also, the people who have a high level of intolerance of uncertainty, which are also the people who worry about COVID-19, will also worry about the vaccine. So is that uncertainty? And that's also been behind the anti-vaccination messages that you would see on internet sites or on Facebook sites. The anti-vaxxers come out um, arguing, well, there are, there are all kinds of uncertainties about it. And we're seeing this this time around. There's been a rise of COVID-19 anti-vaxxing groups being voiced on Facebook. So, so on the one hand, you'd think, okay, COVID-19 is more dangerous than previous pandemic flus in recent times. Maybe that will motivate people to get vaccinated. But on the other hand, there's all these uncertainties we didn't have in the past. So who knows how they will play out. But from our data, it looks like at the moment, 20% of people say they're not going to get vaccinated, which is a great concern. What do you think we can do to ensure that we are proactive about this vaccine uncertainty instead of reactive? Exactly. We need to be proactive rather than reactive. Instead of waiting the 12 months or so until a vaccine comes, we need to start that discussion early. We need to start refuting the myths about um, the vaccines. Um, we need to have a community dialogue, just like we've got a great community dialogue now about the importance of social distancing and the value of healthcare workers. We need to have the same kind of, of, uh, of programs and dialogues about the importance of getting vaccinated, not just for COVID-19, but for seasonal flu. And people need to understand that they're not just doing it for themselves, they're doing it for the herd, they're doing it for the community, for the people who are too frail, or um, medically unfit for getting vaccinated. So we need to do that. And we need to address misconceptions about vaccines in general, which many people have. A lot of people still believe in the, um, in the bogus link between um, vaccines and autism, which has been thoroughly discredited because it was based on pseudoscience. But remarkably, a number of people in the community still believe that. Yeah, and it seems like there's a lot of these conspiracy theories surrounding vaccines um, and also especially with the economy because we know the economy has been hit really hard. Um, what's your take on some these conspiracy theories that have been coming up? Um, what are some of the factors do you think that motivate um, these things to come up during pandemics? They're really interesting. Um, the conspiracy theories uh, about COVID-19 are exactly the same as the ones that arose previously. For example, they're, they're identical to the Zika virus uh, conspiracy theories. The idea that it's a bioweapon that somehow got out of the lab, that it's been created by a shadowy group called the New World Order, designed to, to cull the population so that um, this group can take charge. Um, if you do research or study the people who believe in those conspiracy theories, if you believe in one conspiracy theory, you tend to believe in others. So if you believe that COVID-19 was a bioweapon that was re released from a lab in China, you'll also tend to believe that NASA faked the moon landing, that JFK was uh, assassinated by the mafia, that 9-11 was an inside job, all those sorts of things. So it's this conspiratorial mindset um, in which some of these people, that the, the, the hardcore conspiracy theorist believers, um, they're, they're paranoid, they're suspicious in other words, but they're also narcissistic to some extent. They believe they have special knowledge that none of uh, the rest of us don't have. And they hang together in groups or they live in information silos, as, as it were, where they reinforce one another. Um, but that's, that's a minority of people. Uh, 
but the conspiracy theorists are the ones who propagate these conspiracies. Um, but fortunately, the media um, are not picking up many of these. They're not giving them much attention. They're, they're, they're realizing it's another example of do, do not feed the trolls. Although these people aren't trolls, they really believe the, the theories that they're propagating. So you, you think that the media is doing a bit of a better job this time around, um, not sort of latching onto these um, sort of crazy ideas? Exactly. Um, yes, it's more of a, of a case of responsible journalism, not giving these conspiracy theories uh, um, any attention. Uh, and it's tricky, you know, if there is a rumor or a, a, a theory spreading around, do you address it or do you ignore it? Um, and that's a, a challenge faced by the WHO. They have to figure out which rumours are important to address and which um, should be dismissed. Um, if there was fake news or fake rumours getting around which were harmful for people, then it's important to address them. For example, we've seen um, people taking chloroquine or hydrochloroquine, thinking it will keep them safe, and there have been a number of deaths and overdoses from that um, That. Uh, um, dangerous idea, so that needs to be addressed. The other uh, sorts of rumours or conspiracy theories, like the idea that, um, that uh, COVID-19 is a bioweapon, they're the ones that might be best ignored. Because if you go out and publicly refute those theories, then you'll introduce the theory to people who might not have heard of it otherwise. Well, we've been talking a lot about these sort of negative things that have been coming up, like trolls and conspiracy theories, but I think it's also important to highlight some of the, the good that's been going around, some of the altruistic behaviors that we've seen. You, you mentioned in The Independent that you're predicting, or at least you're hoping for, a rise in altruism during this pandemic as people are coming together to help each other. How much of this do you think is going to be possible given the stringent social isolation measures we've seen? Um, you can come together socially without coming together physically. So um, people are finding ways of connecting and uh, again, that's the, the beauty of social media or being connected digitally, that we are able to re reach out and offer support, um, reach out to our neighbours um, who might be unable to go out and shop for groceries, for example, and to see if we can do that for them. So we are seeing some of that, although it is a lot more challenging um, to do. But I think an Im important question is, OK, we've seen some solidarity, particularly around health care workers with the seven o'clock cheer and so forth. Um, an important issue is, is that going to continue after COVID-19 is gone? Wouldn't it be great if this, this sense of community spirit that's being built up persists? Or will we just go back to um, uh, things previously? Or will things change altogether? Well, people have been in lockdown, social distancing for so long that they will, will have grown alienated and isolated physically from one another. They're the big questions that remain to be addressed. Well, as a specialist in anxiety, I'm curious, how do you think that these, these social distancing and isolation measures that are in place are going to be affecting people's mental health over the long term as well? That's a good question. Um, some people are coping really badly um, with social distancing uh, or with self-isolation. Some people are, these are the people who are really frightened of infection. They're an anxious in general. They're finding it very difficult. Um, Interestingly, there's been a bunch of research on who copes well with um, social distancing. Uh, in other words, what are the characteristics of people who have the right stuff? Turns out that the um, 
people who cope well in social distancing are also the people who do well in astronaut programs. That is, they cope well with uh, prolonged isolation and confinement. And they tend to be people who are, who are hardy, they're resilient, they're optimistic, they are planful, they see um, stresses as challenges rather than threats, and they also tend to be introverted, that they really don't need to be around people a lot there. They can keep themselves entertained. And so this time around, I think some of the more extroverted people who are very gregarious and want to be around people are having a really difficult time coping and they're just itching to get out and hang out with their friends. And of course, if they do that, then that's going to um, uh, make it more difficult to control COVID-19. That's good news to all our astronaut listeners. <laughs> how, do you, how do you think that people who already have pre-existing mental health conditions, such as anxiety or depression, how do you think they're coping? Do they need to take extra concern during these um, sort of uncertain times to, to preserve themselves? Or? Well, everyone's different. Some people seem to be doing okay, but many people um, with pre-existing psychological problems are not doing very well at all. And they need to, during these times, and these people... We need to remember that uh, COVID-19 is not just associated with um, stresses associated with infection and, and lockdown. For many people, they're experiencing severe financial problems as well or experiencing relationship conflicts because you're locked up in a, in a small space together. And for some people, their businesses are going bankrupt. Um, and so for people with pre-existing um, mental health problems, they're having a very difficult time in many cases. And they're the people who need to reach out for care if we're, we're in a good place to some extent in which we have a, a growth of online mental health treatment programs like the Bounce Back program, which is available online. The bad news is um, many people don't know about it, and um, for some people that might not be enough. So I'm thinking that the mental health fallout of COVID-19 might be actually bigger than the actual physical fallout. What are some ways we can be more proactive about preventing this? As a, uh, for people suffering from emotional problems, is to, to recognise that there are treatments available, to recognise the warning signs. And we're finding that some of our really distressed people are um, trying to cope by overeating, consuming uh, drugs or alcohol, um, overspending on the internet, uh, engaging in, in sorts of coping behaviours that are going to create further problems in the longer term. In other words, self-defeating coping behaviours. So recognising that that's an issue is important, an important start. And then to start um, looking for ways of getting help. So looking for online services such as a bounce back program. And that's important. For other people, they might find that they need to um, seek out a mental health specialist after uh, social distancing has been discontinued. They might have to go out for a face-to-face consultation. My concern is we just don't have the mental health resources to treat um, the number of, of highly distressed people because of COVID-19. Can you give our listeners a little brief on uh, Bounce Back? What is that exactly? It's an online cognitive behavioural program that provides people with uh, information about cognitive behavioural therapy and strategies for managing negative moods. It used to require a doctor's prescription, but it's been since opened up um, to the general public without a prescription. So you can go online and there's uh, all kinds of information that you can seek out um, and there's exercises you can do and there are ways of, of connecting with people too that can help. I'd like to change topics and hear your thoughts on a different issue. 
Racism is something that has been prevalent during the COVID outbreak. And so do you think pandemics intrinsically drive a xenophobic response from people? They have in the past. Um, Unfortunately, that's always been the case. Part of it could be because people are inherently tribalistic. We've evolved in small groups. And historically, infections for which we as a tribe do not have immunity are infections brought in by foreigners. You you think of European explorers to the Americas, they brought smallpox and influenza, um, which decimated the indigenous peoples there. So humans, as it were, have developed um, xenophobia as a kind of coping response when they're threatened with infection. And it's been demonstrated in experiments, if you threaten people with infection or if you make them worried about getting infection, they're going to become more xenophobic. Now, that said, some people are uh, more xenophobic than others, and they're typically the people who are very frightened of getting infected. So they are the people who will respond with overt racism. But it's more complex than that, of course. Uh, We can distinguish between racist attitudes and racist behaviours. And people can... It can be really hard to suppress or to eradicate uh, racist attitudes. It's easier at a community level to suppress uh, racist behaviours. But what that depends on is what our community leaders do. If our community leaders um, send the message out that um, discrimination against people of Chinese ancestry is unacceptable, then that's going to suppress racist behaviours. But if our community leaders come out and say, oh, COVID-19 is a Chinese virus, notice the use of language there, a Chinese virus, that's going to enhance racism. Uh, So in other words, if racist people see their leaders acting in a racist way, that's going to serve as a disinhibitory influence that's going to incite racism. So it's a complex issue. Do you think that the global leaders have done enough to prevent this sort of racism? I think some have. Some have, and some not so much. (laughs) (laughs) I think we all know who you're talking about. (laughs) Do you think that this kind of tribal mentality has any benefits or place in like today's modern global society? Um, It's a complex issue. Uh, The tribal mentality, in some senses, contributed to the rise of community solidarity, of people coming together. Because, you know, you can have people coming together and and supporting one another, but they can also be xenophobic. So they're supporting one another in a tribe or an extended tribe like a community. Um, And part of it has to do with our processing power. How many people... um, can we keep in memory or, or, or remember links with at once? We can't remember millions of people, but we have a certain number of people that we can cognitively represent in a network. So in some extent, it depends on our processing power that we will always be tribalistic to some extent. I'd like to ask uh, if you have any final thoughts or final words, maybe some general advice uh, you'd like to pass on during the pandemic. Um, yeah, I think one thing to bear in mind is it can be useful for people to remind themselves that this will be over. Humans have survived countless pandemics in the past and maybe this can make us tougher or, or we can benefit in some fashion. We can make ourselves more resilient to stress and we can come together with our communities by learning that the advantages of reminding of ourselves of the advantages of solidarity. And that can happen. Um, and that's going to be important because of uh, when we emerge from COVID-19, we'll still have the problem of dealing with 
the fallout of climate change, and that's going to involve an increase in natural disasters and so forth. So this enables us, in a sense, to be prepared for what's to come. Um, it's not all grim, of course, because if we can maintain that sense of solidarity that is evolving during this pandemic, then that can be very useful if we can keep it going forward. Well, on that wonderful positive note, <laughs> we'd like to say thank you so much, uh, Dr. Taylor, for joining us here today. We really appreciate your um, expertise and um, we uh, hope to see you soon. Thanks very much. Thanks to you both. Thank you. Stay healthy. Thank you, Dr. Taylor. And thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of the Metamorphosis podcast, you can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, or you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube at UBC Medvid. See you soon. If you're interested in more COVID-19 related content, there are two other podcasts you might want to check out. First, from UBC's Continuing Professional Development Department, is a series called Updates for Healthcare Providers, Experiences from the Frontlines. This brings together panels of healthcare professionals working directly in the response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Another great show you might enjoy is hosted by Drs. Sarah Fletcher and Morgan Price, who also happens to be our guest on a great episode of Metamorphosis. Their podcast is called Primary Care in a Pandemic, and it looks at the changes to primary care in BC and how clinics and physicians are adapting to the crisis. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 